0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis. Today, I will be by myself interviewing Kelsey Lechner, who has a fascinating story. She's seven years experience living and working abroad in places like Japan, Bangladesh, Tanzania, Taiwan, and 10 years experience learning foreign languages as well as teaching them. And two of those years being teaching at a university in a low-income country. So her travel and multicultural experience is what I really wanted to dive into today. We talked about her, uh, her personal path and cross-cultural communication, her language learning strategy, what uh, lessons she's learned along the way, uh, what she would have done differently, some techniques that she uses as she would start a new language, culture shocks, some uh, words of advice for solo solo female travelers, and a bunch of other things. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Kelsey. Let's dive right on in.
1: The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 123. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis, and today I am joined by Kelsey, who is going to share her fascinating story with us. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Kelsey.
1: Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm going to dive right on in and let you introduce yourself. So how have languages become an important part of your life? And uh, tell us the evolution of all of that. Oh, gosh.
1: Um, Well, I've definitely always been interested in different cultures ever since I was little. Um, One of my earliest memories is going to the supermarket with my mom, and our first stop would always be at the bakery so I could get a cupcake just as a little present for going with her. And I thought it was so cool that the little plastic toy on top of the cupcake was made in China. So at that point, I had no idea that everything was made in China, especially small plastic things, but I remember just being blown away that... This little thing in my hand was made in this far off country, this exotic country of China. Um, and so then I'd always been like vaguely interested, especially in East Asia. Um, and then in middle school, Santa gave me a learn Japanese in 10 days CD. Um, and I can tell you I did not learn Japanese in 10 days through that, but that kind of sparked like, oh, languages are really cool. Um, So I just started trying to learn Japanese on my own at that point. Um, when I've tried to tell my story before recently, I clocked in potentially at an hour. So I'm going to fast forward through a little bit of stuff. Um, but anyway, so then I got into university, studied international relations, Japanese, second language studies. And then that sent me on a mishmash of a career to this point. Um, I worked in Japan on the JET program as a coordinator for international relations. And I know you've uh, interviewed someone before who was currently on that program. Um, and then I then moved to Tokyo to work at a human rights organization. Um, another longer story short, then I moved to Bangladesh and I worked for a couple of years at the Asian university for women as a, initially I was hired as an English teacher, then I also evolved into like their computer teacher and their Zumba instructor, another mishmash of fun things going on. But then I was doing another different thing with the language. Um, after that, I moved to Tanzania for a year to be a uh, English English teacher, teacher trainer. Um, so at secondary school in Tanzania, um, while primary school is on Swahili, uh, secondary school is all in English. So in order to graduate, you have to at least be able to take exams in English. And so that throws a big curveball to a lot of people's educations. Um, and then after that, most recently, I have been back in my home state of Indiana working as a Japanese translator interpreter for a manufacturer. And pretty soon I am off to graduate school in the UK, um, doing international education development. So language has, in different forms, always taking a different role in my life so far, in my career. And at this point, I know I'm at least uh, conversational in six languages, Uh, English, Japanese, Mandarin, Chinese, uh, Spanish, Bengali and Swahili.
0: Absolutely amazing, and uh, you've got quite the resume there, and I would love to hear you've clearly gravitated a bit towards um working with nonprofits and in diplomacy, so is there a reason you've gone in that direction and chosen that path a lot in your um, your various like work experiences
1: um so then I'm honestly not sure where I'm going to be going right after that. Is it diplomacy and government? Is it staying with nonprofits? Maybe it's like CSR, ESG with corporations, um, with social entrepreneurship. I'm really partially I'm going to grad school to try and figure that out, hopefully. Um, but a lot of that. Kind of came more or less at the same time as I was starting to get really interested in other languages and um, starting to learn more about different cultures. I honestly can't remember exactly what set it off, but I remember, I think it was my last year. No, my second to last year in high school. And I wanted to write for my English class an essay on the Tibetan and Uyghur issues in China. And the teacher initially said, no, because that's not related to my life. Um, <laughs> look at me now. I can probably make a stronger connection. But at that time, I think I was interested in learning Chinese. So that was kind of a cultural or sort of in a way like connected through uh, language is how I convinced her. Um, and then once I got to college or university, depending on uh, what part of the world you're listening to me in, um, so that was where I started learning about all of Japan's history of colonization around the World War II 1900s era, especially being like, oh, wow. So there's this whole aspect to Japanese history that I never learned about and that, you know, Japan did a lot of the same things that the U.S. and these European countries that I learned about did. Um, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, so it's been like a progression. And then that was also the period when I learned that my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana, at least at the time, had one of the largest populations of Burmese refugees in the U.S. Um, and so then on my summers, a couple of summers, I volunteered there teaching mostly English um, citizenship and also computer skills to the um, anyone who wanted to learn there from that group. And so it's kind of just been a progression here. Um, then when I moved from the JET program, working in diplomacy directly with government to the NGO in Tokyo, I thought that was going to be my dream job, working for a Japanese human rights organization in Tokyo. And it turned out it wasn't. Um, so then I've since then, I've worked for different kinds of institutions, different kinds of nonprofits as well. And I'm still trying to figure out what is the best fit for me? And um, I, I can keep talking about this for a long time, but I can kind of pause here if you have anything that you'd like to follow up with at this point.
0: No, that that definitely makes sense for what's kind of been uh, pulling you in. And I'm I'm sure your story is going to continue to evolve in interesting directions from there. (laughs) But um, I did want to ask a bit more about your personal experiences in living in countries like Japan, Bangladesh, Tanzania, Taiwan, and so on. Uh, How do you feel that living in such vastly different and mainly Asian cultures has um, Asian and African cultures has influenced your personality? How do you think you have personally changed from the person you used to be?
1: Hmm. That is a really good question. Give me a second to try and think of the best way to answer this.
0: Not just your personality, but your, your life in general and your, your work uh, experiences.
1: Hmm. Well, I'd say like, for example, I went directly to Bangladesh from Japan. Um, so I'll give that as an example. It's like Japan and Bangladesh, it was a complete 180. In Japan, everything is orderly, sometimes to the point where it feels a little bit stiff how orderly it is. You try to avoid conflict. If there is a conflict, you try to accept the situation and move on. Whereas I remember going through the airport in Taka, I believe the capital of Bangladesh, uh, when I was coming back from a trip after I'd been living there for a while and I remember seeing a fight break out at the customs, I think. And I mean, that's kind of like, you will not even do that in the U S like if the customs agent says, Hey, give me this. They try to confiscate something, especially if it's not something all that important, um, unless it's like a family heirloom or something like you just say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Here you go. <laughs> the actual fight broke out. Like you want to be assertive in Bangladesh. And then you also kind of need to predict what could go wrong and be flexible. Like the traffic in all throughout the cities in Bangladesh is no joke, some of the worst in the world. So you need to have patience, but also be really assertive um, with that. And so like Japan kind of taught me how to you know, deal and accept situations and Bangladesh taught me how to be a lot more assertive and flexible to kind of balance it out together
0: it's amazing and of course you know people on this podcast are very interested in the logistics of the language learning and your experience is mainly in these vastly different non-european languages so what is your language learning strategy do you have uh, particular ways you begin learning the language do you have resources you like to use how do you reach that conversational stage ultimately
1: yeah. So one of the big things I do is I try to find as many resources as I can first and see which one fits me. Um, so I really like having both a visual and an audio uh, materials, like, you know, visual could easily be, especially if you're just starting out a really good textbook. But then sometimes you need to shop around to see which one you like the best, which one works, um, clicks with you the most and is to what you need. Um, And then audio, whether that's YouTube videos, I'm a big fan of podcasts. Um, if I can't find anything where it's like, you know, teaching you the language, then try and find just something for natives of that language to try and figure out the cadence, the flow, and every now and then I can pick out a new word that I know, even if it's one of the most common words in the language, you get so excited, especially at the beginning. <laughs> um, so that's what I usually do, but at this point, like when I first started learning Japanese, I was in middle school and I was just starting to learn how to use the internet. so I was kind of grasping at everything and I'm sure if I had you know the internet skills and if the internet was as developed as it is now back then, um, I probably would have progressed a lot quicker. Um, but then also, doing what you can to try and use the language, produce it. So, you know, you're studying, I'm a big fan of Anki. I use that, um, just about every day as well to try and keep up with all of them. Um, but then, you know, trying to speak it, if you have, um, a partner to speak with, or if not, at least like writing a diary, whether you put that onto iTalkie, or at the time lang eight was really big, um, and just get, you know, using the grammar and the vocabulary that Um, You're learning, but also I find like it just gets easier. The more languages that you add on, your brain just gets so much more flexible. So the curveballs that I was shocked by when I was learning, let's say Spanish. That was my second language I was adding on after Japanese. I look back at that. I'm like, really? I was confused by that. Like, that's just so simple.
0: And in terms of like actually using the language when you're in the countries, because uh, this is definitely something I've I personally had to adjust to, is that I found with European languages, even when it's vastly different, even when I think about a language like Hungarian, which is not in the same language family, uh, it's not even an Indo-European language, but I still uh, was able to actively use that uh, going out with Hungarians because the culture was so similar to what I'm, I'm coming from. Uh, So that kind of helped me a lot with the social aspect. So how do you actually, in in terms of like um, getting to know the people and getting to use the language with them beyond just uh, language exchange partners and teachers you can find online, how do you get integrated into speaking the language in these vastly different cultures yourself?
1: Yeah, um, so I'll give two different examples because I've been on two different extremes, maybe not quite extremes there. Um, but when I moved to Bangladesh and when I moved to Tanzania, I came in with zero Bengali, zero Swahili. So I was trying to learn from the ground up and I'm not going to lie. I really struggled in Bangladesh, not necessarily because the language was hard, but just because it was so hard to use it, which is kind of maybe a strange thing to say if you haven't been and haven't been in the environment, but I completely understand what you mean by that social aspect. So I was working in an English environment, um, actually both in Tanzania and in Bangladesh. I was working in English environments, but after a year, my Swahili far surpassed my Bengali after just two, after two years. Um, because in Bangladesh, it was actually difficult to use Bengali, um, and the university, um, it was a mishmash of all sort people from all sorts of different cultures and different countries. And so English was definitely the common language and everyone was quite good at it. And if um, me being in a fundamental English teacher, I was trying to use it as much to get my students level up um, as possible. Um, And then a lot of the foreign staff there had the attitude of, you know, why bother learning Bengali? A lot of them just didn't bother with it. So there wasn't that community there of, you know, let's learn this together. Let's um, work together. And then even when you go out in society, I was in Chittagong, which is the second largest city. And they have what they call a different dialect of Bengali. I'm not entirely sold that it's a different dialect. It might be another language. Um, but anyway, it's sounds completely different from standard Bengali. Um, and so class and status is also a huge social influence in Bangladesh. So if you are middle class or above, there's a really high probability that you went to an English medium school and there's not too many foreigners, especially where I was in Bangladesh. So they see me and they want to use only English with me. But also like, well, not only to practice their English and speak with a real foreigner, but also because that shows everyone around that they are middle class or up. Like it gives them status. And so I'd be trying to speak Bengali to someone and then be like, Oh, how cute. You're learning Bengali. And then just keep talking to me in English. Whereas then if you were lower than middle class, like let's say you were working class, like a rickshaw polar. Because of the local dialect and also just textbook Bengali is not your spoken Bengali, really. I could not understand a lot of what they were saying. It was so heavily accented that even when I was trying to use it, generally they could understand me, but I had no idea what they were saying back to me. And so I'm not going to lie. I really struggled with that. Um, but then it was a very different situation when I went to Tanzania. Um, so the Tanzanians are so proud of Swahili. It's just part of their like national identity. And so even though I was working at a secondary school um, where there was supposed to be heavily English influence and I was working at an American NGO, there was a culture of, OK, if you are coming here to work here, you should learn Swahili, you should make an effort. And so there was automatically both that community of foreigners trying to learn Swahili and trying to use it and being excited when they learn something new and get to use it and it goes well. And also because the locals there are so excited that you are learning Swahili, they will avoid using English as much as they can. And so um, I actually had like, even though I was there to help the teachers with English, they really helped me with my Swahili. Um, so, uh, if I ever got completely stuck and nothing was going through, you know, we could switch to English and be fine. Or if it was something that was way above the level that I was at some sort of really difficult topic that was just really important to communicate, um, we could do that. And then because they spoke to me in Swahili so much, they started catching on when, you know, I needed them to slow down. I couldn't, you know, they couldn't talk to me like they were talking to their Tanzanian coworkers. I wasn't quite there yet. Sometimes I just had to give them blank looks and be like, I do not understand what you're telling me right now. I don't know this word. Um, it was, you know, the opposite of the experience I had in Bangladesh where Tanzania was like, why not study Swahili? That community is just so important. And so I wish I kind of did that first and was able to take those skills and those experience over to Bangladesh if I could do anything differently.
0: Well, with that in mind, if you were to go to Bangladesh and start over or if you go to uh another country nearby that maybe has that similar kind of culture and uh diversity of dialects that i've I've definitely come across that in multiple places that are called dialects, but realistically from a European standpoint, they would be different languages like you know, French and Spanish and Italian are a lot closer than so called dialects of other languages. Uh, so, what would you do now, given uh, your experiences in places like uh, Tanzania that were a bit more encouraging? What would you do if you were, uh, if Bangladesh um, were your next destination and you hadn't learned the language yet? Um, and, like you said, a lot of resources have changed over the years. So how would you have changed as a language learner going into it right now?
1: Um, honestly, I would, try, I would probably just be more assertive with my language learning in Bangladesh again. Um, so honestly, just because of the social aspect, like, why are you learning Bengali? Oh, my gosh. You know, it wasn't like a negative, like, why are you learning Bengali? But just more confusion. Whereas in Tanzania, as I mentioned, you know, it was the opposite. And so I became a lot more confident trying to use Swahili. I was a lot less afraid to make mistakes. Whereas you know I wasn't necessarily afraid of making mistakes going in to Bangladesh, but just because you know I was such the odd one out, um, I was a lot more timid to try and use it. Whereas you know in Tanzania, most of the people I interacted with, they also spoke English, but then I wasn't afraid to use Swahili with them. Um, so kind of do the same thing. So even if they were trying to use English with me in Bangladesh, I would try and continue using the Bengali I knew, and then maybe directly ask, Hey, can we speak in simple Bengali right now and just be less timid about it?
0: Yeah, that's definitely been my approach has been uh, assertiveness has helped me in a lot of places. And, uh, you just, you just sometimes have to stand up for yourself and, you know, ultimately you're the person who has moved across the world, uh, so if they want to practice English, they've they got to get a flight to, to an English-speaking country. And I, I've uh, kind of pushed my, um, my agenda at times, and I'm glad that I've done that. It's, it's made a big, big difference for me. Um, and in terms of like, um, I, I know when it comes to learning languages, I'm pretty homogenous when it comes to regardless of what the language is. My strategy is exactly the same We'll speak from day one and all that. But for you personally, have you found that you adjust your strategy depending on the language family? I mean, let's let's move out all of the cultural um, the setbacks and presume that the standard dialect is the one that you, whatever you're studying, it's the one that you're going to be ultimately using and that is of the same level of difficulty as you approach people. How would your approach differ for something like a European language compare it to especially an Asian language?
1: That's a good question. And like to your point that you just made about like, you know, I'm the one who has come to your country. I think that is like fair to a point. But then, you know, I do recognize that I have a lot of privilege in having a very strong passport. And from one of the richest countries in the world, like I learned about like passport restrictions, visa restrictions in Bangladesh. It is so hard for them to leave the country. So I like, you know, I kind of take that with a grain of salt, like kind of half going along with it, but then half like, okay, let like, to rephrase. Maybe my previous answer was like, you know, 50%, 50%, I think is a very fair, um, half assertiveness, even if I'm not a hundred percent gung ho, I'm going to use this language. Um, and we're just going to speak in what I want to speak. Um, and so when I'm learning languages, I'm not really sure if I take necessarily a different approach, but um, I think the biggest thing is, do I need to learn a different alphabet or a different writing system or not? So that is probably like the biggest thing. I don't necessarily take a different approach to it. Um, but for example, when I learn you know, Japanese, I would it's a fascinating writing system, but I would say it's probably the most difficult one of any language. Chinese you can make an argument for, um, and it's definitely right up there, but, you know, I've learned both of them and learning one definitely helps learn the other. Um, but then when I learned Bengali, it was relatively more similar to English as then it's mostly phonetic. Um, so it comes from Sanskrit and so it has a lot of commonalities with like Thai and Hindi. Um, you know, not necessarily they're, re- they're not necessarily related, but it was also had some commonalities just with functionality as when I tried to learn Korean a little bit. Um, and so it's if I need to learn another writing system, I think the progress is a little bit slower. But I absolutely do try and learn that writing system because it really helps one understand the language. You can have access to so many more authentic resources off the bat. Um, and a lot of times that helps with your pronunciation, not relying on like English phonetic transcription that may or may not be accurate or may or may not be standardized. Um, but you know, I'm not going to say the Bengali alphabet is like a breeze. It is a little bit more difficult than learning the Korean alphabet, for example. Um, but you know, compared to Japanese, Chinese, that wasn't hard. Um, and so a lot of people were so surprised that I did bother trying to learn the Bengali alphabet and not just, you know, a few uh, phrases. But, you know, once you have, you know, gotten your brain flexible learning one, you know, you kind of just take that with you and it's not that hard learning another. Um, but then, for example, when I learned Swahili, it's all written with the same alphabet that English is. It's all phonetic. It's kind of like phonetic in the sense that Spanish is phonetic. So that was super easy. And probably another reason why I
0: probably went a little bit faster with Swahili. Yeah, that's that's a good point for sure. And in terms of uh, a lot of the work you've done has been really on the ground, and uh, like you've helped people learn English, and there's been a lot of this cross-cultural communication. Um, so, how uh, have you avoided any um, any faux pas and any missteps? In this cross-cultural communication, how have you helped others to gain this understanding from their perspective to try to communicate better with English speakers?
1: Well, I'm definitely not going to say I have avoided all the faux pas. I've definitely made mistakes, um, but I think you need to learn to take that in stride, and that's kind of what cultural, com- like intercultural communication, is all about. Is you know, if I commit a faux pas. I would love if you, you know, politely told me what I did wrong and how to improve it. Um, and vice versa. Um, so I'm not just like messing it up all the time, but then a lot of people learning English, especially in Asia, are very nervous to use it. You know, they feel like making a pronunciation or vocabulary or grammar mistake is a faux pas in itself. Um, so I, you know, I think mistakes are wonderful. Mistakes really help you learn. And, you know, if you don't learn from your mistakes and you're just kind of like doing them left and right with, you know, no awareness, then that's not going to help you. Um, but just expect mistakes, learn from them and laugh them off. Um, so, for example, uh, when I was getting in gear, learning Bengali, um I took a trip to Vietnam in my second year, and I stayed at a hostel. And there was a woman with her partner. Um, her partner was of Latin American descent, American. And so he spoke Spanish and English both fluently, but the woman, she was from Colombia, and didn't seem to speak a lick of English. And so she was reliant on her partner Um, to interpret everything that was being said if there were no other Spanish speakers around, which at the time there weren't. Um, And so then I tried to pull out the Spanish that I learned. I hadn't really used it since high school all that much. It had been kind of on the back burner for me. I'm like, okay, like I was pretty conversational in high school. Like I got pretty good. Let's pull it back out and try and talk with her and make her feel, you know, not welcome necessarily, but, you know, just engaged Uh, Unfortunately, the word for my, like me, my, in Bengali is amar, which means to love the verb in Spanish. And once I get to an intermediate level, no matter how unrelated the language families are, they just start mixing and mashing and I don't know what's going on. But for the life of me, I could not remember me the Spanish word for my, and so I kept saying, Amar, 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 everything to this woman who I'm sure had no idea what was going on. Like maybe she thought I was hitting on her or something. Um, but (laughs) it just makes, that's one of my favorite language learning stories. Like then the next time I had a Spanish conversation with someone half a year later, I was so proud of myself that I could remember this low bar I got me correct. And that was being pulled out of the right brain drawer, finally. I wasn't worried about hitting on someone I was trying to have a business conversation with.
0: I'm sure in in all of these, uh, especially the vastly different Asian and African cultures you've integrated into, you've had a lot of very big culture shocks. So you've clearly got lots of stories to tell. I would love to hear some of your biggest culture shocks, like you said, at the the airport security argument, like actual fight there. What other like direct culture shocks have you had yourself?
1: I've definitely had a lot of little culture shocks. And let's see, that is a really big, uh, strong one. So like for me, culture shock kind of creeps up on me. It's not that big boom sort of thing, but just, you know, kind of like something that affects your mental health. And it's like little things here and there. And then for some reason today, this little thing turns into a big issue. Um, and I remember my first recognition of, oh my gosh, I'm going through culture shock was, um, when I was studying abroad in Japan for the first time. And, you know, today I think Japanese architecture, Japanese houses are beautiful. But for some reason at that point, I was just walking through a residential neighborhood. I'm like, Japanese houses are so dumb. I have no idea why. Um, I just maybe miss like the wide, uh, spaces that you have in the U S potentially in the big yards. Um, but that was just like one little thing that crept up on me. Um, and then for example, later on, this is, I guess, another like cross communication, like you need to like take a step back and be like, okay, hold on. What are we really talking about? Um, I had a Japanese boyfriend when I was studying uh, in Japan and we did long distance for a little bit when I came back And I talked about going out to a bar with some friends and then coming back, driving back to my apartment. And he was shocked and angry at me because he could not believe I was drunk driving. And it took me over a year to realize the definition of drunk driving in Japan is very different from the definition in the U.S. The U.S. we go by uh, blood alcohol level. So I could have like one drink, maybe two depending on what it is and still be totally fine to drive. Japan, it's basically, you know, they technically have blood alcohol level, but the practicality is if you drink, even have a sip of alcohol, you are legally drunk and you cannot drive, you cannot ride a bike. And so we had to take like a pause there and being like, okay, what's going on here? Because there is definitely a big communication issue going on. Um, and so for sure, like those are some like the, you know, little to medium sized ones, Bangladesh, another thing I had to learn was, um, dealing with sexual harassment, um, definitely a very patriarchal place. And I actually considered buying a burqa at one point, just to try and ward off some of the comments I got. Um, but then, so like there definitely was a lot of sexual harassment and even in English against me in Bangladesh, and I'm sure against a lot of other women. Um, Again, it's a wonderful country. Um, I'm not going to like just totally rag on it. But this was a big, strong thing I had to deal with. Um, And I learned that learning a little Bengali, yelling at the guys goes a long way. Like if I speak a little bit of Bengali, yell at them. Oh, okay, I guess I won't bother her anymore. I guess I won't. I'll stop following her and shouting things at her. Um, and so then I took that to, um, like, okay, let's, let's learn how to be more assertive in Bengali. Let's learn how to channel this into the language. And as I said at the point, I was working for a women's university. And if I was going through that, there's no way I'd be the only one. I'm sure my students were going through that. So I had a mini workshop with the students I was working with. Be like, okay, if this happens, what should we do? Um, and so I had to figure out how to balance this together. Um, To be calm, um, you know, sometimes you had to take care of your mental health. There were days I didn't want to step outside, but ultimately I did. And I learned how to deal with it and try not to be too culturally inappropriate while doing it.
0: In terms, I know a lot of people listening are kind of potentially considering um, beginning the nomadic life. And as a solo female traveler, you have to deal with issues like this, like potential sexual harassment and Uh, Other things that male solo travelers just don't have to even think about. So for any uh, aspiring female travelers, what words would you impart to them? Like what uh, should they uh, look out for and what isn't necessarily as bad as they think? Like do situations like that, do, do you kind of feel they just get normalized and they go into the background and it's not that big a deal or is it something you have to be aware of pretty much all the time, but you just become a stronger person from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd say I'm a little bit stronger, but I think it's really unfortunate that I have to be a stronger person for it. Um, So what I did in Bangladesh after kind of one of the worst cases of sexual harassment I got outside is I then went to one of my Bangladeshi female co-workers and I'm like, hey, what are some of the words I can do to try and ward off this? Like, I don't want to start a fight. I don't want to put myself in an unsafe situation but how can I react to this? And so the two phrases um, that I put in my bank are just simple "jao" or "jan," like just go. And that one worked really well. That's something that you learn in Bengali 101. Um, so go away and the local language can work. I'm sure it really depends on the context. I'm sure there's a lot of cultures where that would not work. Um, So I really would recommend, you know, sitting down with a local woman and learning from her experience and what can you do. Um, But then another one I learned, and I keep this in my arsenal for every language is I'm not here for you. Like, it's not really going to start a fight, but it's just like, I am my own person. I'm not here for you. Which literally is like, I did not come for you. Um, and so then another thing that I would strongly recommend um, is find the travel groups that are going to have your back and going to help you out. So, for example, Facebook is really popular in Bangladesh and there's a lot of female travel Facebook groups. So if you're going to Bangladesh, join that, learn from their experiences and what to do, what not to do. I actually traveled through India alone. Uh, for a couple of weeks but honestly I would not have done that at that point in my life I had if I had not been living in Bangladesh first and known kind of the general cultural ropes that um, the subcontinent had.
0: So you've uh, had a lot of very fascinating experiences in your life as a traveler but I am very curious where do you see this going uh, moving forward because like you said you'll be Uh, you'll be leaving Indiana and getting back on the road. So where do you see your next uh, several years of travels taking you?
1: Yeah, so I've actually never been to Europe before, but the grad program I'm going to is in London. So hopefully I'll be able to use that as a jumping off point. It just blows my mind that I can go to Paris for a weekend. That has never been an option. Like where I am in Indiana, I guess I could reach Chicago for a weekend, but not a different country and not like a major city in a different country. Um, after my program, like the full title of my master's is going to be education, international development and social justice. And when people ask me career wise what I want to do, I just tell them something in education, international development and social justice. And for me, with that education, ideally, that would be something related to language learning. Um, so what country I will be based in next after this grad program, maybe it will be the UK, maybe it'll be somewhere in Europe, maybe it'll be back in Japan, maybe it'll be Botswana or Ecuador. I have no idea. Um, but, uh, I want to ultimately, if I could maybe wave a magic wand and have my ideal career, I don't know, like, is it a large organization, a small organization, what kind? I don't know that yet. Um, But for example, I'd love to be able to tie all this together. Um, So I really like working with refugees, for example. Um, And I know there is definitely a need for stronger English language education, accessible English language education as a second language in the UK. Um, So that's something I'm potentially looking at. Um, But then, you know, how you can use language education, whether it's English or not, for um, for international development, for your own progress, for social progress, that sort of thing. It's just a big vague idea right now.
0: Fascinating, and I, I look forward to hearing how that uh, story evolves for you. And um, one thing I we always ask people when they come on this podcast, uh, I'd love to hear uh, your answer for is, of course, this is the language hacking podcast. So, what is your definition or your understanding of language hacking?
1: Now that's a really hard one because I feel like, I know everyone gives you a different answer, but I feel like when you say the word hack, it's almost like a shortcut. And I feel like with language learning, kind of like dieting or trying to like gain muscles or something, shortcuts are not really the way to do it, but just kind of steady progress every day. Um, I was trying to teach my Japanese boss um, at my most recent job, English. And he was really struggling because, you know, he would do a lesson one day and then not do anything for a week or two weeks. And I kept telling him, hey, it's like you're trying to build up your muscles. So rather than, you know, doing some heavy weights for a few minutes once a week, like if you start lower weights and then build it up a little bit every day, you're going to see results a lot more. Um, you might not see, you might not be aware of those results. It's a really, really slow, steady progress for most cases, but then being able to document that. And that's another reason why, like, in your example, like, you know, starting to speak from day one and then you can have longer, more intricate conversations. Um, or, you know, keep, like I mentioned, keeping a diary or a journal or some sort of track record and you can see how you're progressing there. So I think. It's not to forget, it's a buildup. Um, you're not going to be able to, you know, in most cases, unless your brain is wired fantastically, you know, go from zero to even forty-five percent or sixty percent or a hundred percent with just a shortcut.
0: Absolutely, yep. Yeah. And this is why for me, hacks are essentially the the best approach that's going to ultimately give you the results, whether that's a shortcut or Um, a hack to find consistency. So consistency is absolutely key. And I'm glad you found that in in your various language learning adventures. And thank you very much for sharing these stories with us. I really appreciate it. So I'll make sure uh, people can find you on LinkedIn and elsewhere in the show notes. And uh, thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: And until the next time, I wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. All right. And at the end of these episodes, I do like to share a quick takeaway for you guys. And what I really liked was uh, Kelsey's uh, kind of echoing of, even though she she had a different uh, point of view with what hacks mean, she definitely sees eye to eye with me when it comes to mistakes. She said, mistakes are wonderful. Learn from them and laugh them off. And you especially start to embrace this when you get into the travel mindset and you have to use it in the country. I know it can feel like when you're in study mode that uh, mistakes are your enemy, but I really hope that these kinds of stories that I share with you of people who've learned the languages in the countries really emphasizes this, that, uh, you know, and especially things like being assertive. When you're trying to speak the language, even if you find a compromise where it's 50%, 50%, you have that assertiveness and you will get through situations where people would potentially want to speak English to you. But I definitely liked what she said about making mistakes. So, yeah, that was my big takeaway. And otherwise, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please do make sure to check us out on Patreon. That's uh, languagehacking.com slash Patreon. The support helps make sure that we can uh, keep doing this since it's um, uh, a lot of work to, to run a big podcast like this. So thank you very much to everybody who does give that support. And until the next time, I will wish you all a very happy language learning.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.